Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that your hair doesn't keep any secrets. It turns out your hair contains information about pretty much everything that's been in your bloodstream, including drugs, heavy metals, and is one of the most commonly used types of forensic evidence. But one thing that no one can tell from looking at just your hair is whether you're a man or woman because men's and women's hair is identical in structure. But if they get the follicle, they could probably genetically sequence that. But your hair shaft itself is made up of keratin, which is the same protein that horns, hooves, claws, feathers, and beaks are made of. And studies in fetal Nile crocodiles, bearded dragon lizards, one of which I had as a pet as a kid, and corn snakes appear to have settled long-standing debate on the rise of skin coverings. Special skin bumps that we've known for a long time direct the development of hair in mammals and feathers in birds also turn out to signal scale growth in reptiles, which means all three of them evolved from a shared ancestor, at least that's according to a study in 2016, which is kind of cool and kind of creepy, which means maybe someday we'll be able to transform your hair cells so you can grow scales on your head. Would that be cool or what? Talk about having control of your own biology. I think it'd be awesome to have a bearded dragon tuft, at least for Burning Man. (laughs) Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. (laughs) Now, today's guest might have been to Burning Man. And she's an expert, uh, she's a physician uh, from SUNY Downstate Medical School in Brooklyn, where she studied dermatology. And she's an expert in hair. It turns out a lot of people really liked the last podcast, number 420, uh, where we talked about, no, that was not a Burning Man joke. It actually was podcast <laughs> number 420, just so that's clear. Uh, and and it wasn't an Elon Musk joke either. <laughs> but what... Uh, what's happening is everyone's saying, hey, I want to know more about hair. And there's such a focus in a lot of medical studies on men and a lot of advice that it turns out is different for men and women. So I thought I would do a podcast that was focusing on hair growth that's applicable to both sexes, but that had a little bit more detail for women because hair changes during pregnancy, during puberty, during perimenopause, and 
Uh, women can have problems with hair loss, hair thinning, and things like that. And plus, I'm planning to live to 180, and I'd like to not be bald during that time. Uh, so I'm hoping I pick up a few tips myself. And Dr. Kogan, or Sophie, uh, also has a personal story here because she had hair loss due to an eating disorder and just the stress of medical training. And it turns out stress and hair loss are integrally linked. She's the chief medical officer of Nutrafol, a company that focuses on science beyond hair loss and what you can do with uh, plant compounds and naturally occurring things to take control of that. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. I'm super excited to be here to talk about a topic that I, you know, that is very dear, near and dear to my heart, um, and to share a lot of the science that we've been, uh, a lot of the news and the science that we've been learning uh, here at Nutrafol. So I'm going to boil it down to a single question. Why do people lose hair? Oof. You know, like that's one, one answer with 7,000 hours. So, but, but give me the top level. Like, like what's going on with, with hair loss? People lose hair for a multitude of reasons. The thing is that there's no one cause. And that's one of the things that's different about how um, of an integrative perspective versus a, a Western medical perspective. We're always looking for this one cause of something. And that leads to targeted drugs that target only single pathways. So for instance, for hair loss today, we only have two FDA approved medications and that's finasteride used for men and minoxidil, um, commonly known as Rogaine, uh, used topically for both men and women. But uh, finasteride, you know, targets androgen synthesis. So for those uh, who don't know, androgens are male hormones and um, uh, the one that's implicated in hair loss the most is the dihydrotestosterone, which is a more potent form of testosterone. Uh, so over the course of the last you know, 30, 40, 50 years, we've thought that DHT is the only implicated uh, pathway in hair loss. But now research shows that that's not the case, that basically there's inflammation, that there's stress, there's environmental assaults, uh, uh, and more and more as we as research evolves and there's a huge surge in research today um, because it's such a such a great area of interest um, is uh, that there are innumerable amounts of pathways so the number of signaling molecules that are and pathways that are uh, responsible for both hair growth and hair loss are so many that it would be impossible to think that there's one targeted uh, uh, intervention or one cause in itself. So any dysregulation to those pathways will cause hair loss. And it could come from multiple factors. Now, finasteride is something that is a very potent thing that can mess with men's hormones, not just around hair loss. There's actually uh, support groups online for a smaller group of men who take it and just permanently have almost a, a neutering of their sex hormones with some big problems from that. And that's something that I'm not planning to add to my regimen, even if I decide to go down a pharmaceutical route to make my hair uh, stay in as I age beyond what you're supposed to age uh, because of that risk. Uh, does minoxidil for men or women represent the same kind of risk? So no, but it represents other types of risk. So for instance, minoxidil is, was initially discovered uh, to grow hair, um, just like anything else, it was an accident, and uh, it's used as an antihypertensive medication. And so it can actually, in larger uh, percentages or larger dosages, can even cause heart palpitations and hypertension, depending. But mostly, a lot of people experience irritation, 
um, and scalp irritation or uh, inflammation as a result of it. Also, because it is the only, well, not the only, but it's the quote unquote only Western medical uh, uh, drug that is uh, allowed for women, uh, women don't like putting things into their hair. <laughs> It is very challenging, actually. So for those who use minoxidil, they do know that there is some residue that's uh, left. And also, it kind of messes with your hairstyle. So there's different types of uh, implications and side effects for minoxidil than finasteride. So you can keep your hair, but it'll be greasy and limp. Exactly, yes. Right. That, that's not something that I think any of us want. Or right. it can cause irritation. And that's something that actually makes a lot of people stop. So compliance is a huge issue with minoxidil. So those two solutions are also targeting single pathways. And it, from my understanding of of follicles, which is probably not at your level, there's definitely a mitochondrial component. There's a hormonal component, uh, which is a big part of it. There's progesterone, uh, there's cortisol, there's all these different things. And for someone listening to this saying, look, I want my hair to be just thicker and not fall out, like, give me the Cliff's notes. Uh, given that we're looking at potentially hundreds or thousands of variables. What are the top three variables to pay attention to? I think that the top three variables are stress, inflammation, and hormones. And stress can have a range of implications. It doesn't just involve direct effect on the follicles, but it also dysregulates other systems in the body that help the follicles grow. So stress is a huge, huge, huge component of this. How do you define stress? Excellent question. So I think we all think of stress as something that happens acutely. And of course, our bodies have been wired to respond to this with a sudden surge of um, adrenaline and cortisol. And, and it's all very important because that's how our body responds to uh, a sudden stress. Like if a bus is coming your way, you need to run away. So the body will mount a response and, and that's an acute type of stress. I think what's more important today than it than an acute stressor, because I think life-threatening events are rather rare. We're no longer being chased by lions or tigers on a regular basis. We don't live in caves. So your stress doesn't come from the same type of life-threatening events, but your body responds the same. And so the stress that is uh, affecting us today is uh, almost a constant state of arousal. It's basically a chronic level of stimulation. So whether it's the boss you know, yelling at you at work and compounded by you waiting in traffic for a couple of hours, compounded by... Uh, you having to deal with your spouse or the deadlines or rent to pay the next day. So, and most importantly, I think in today's society than anything, than even 10 to 15 years ago is this constant uh, connection. So we're no longer able to disconnect from our, um, from, from anyone, even from ourselves. So we constantly, our brain is constantly aroused. So for instance, we never put our phone down. We're always on, you know, we're speaking of Burning Man, that's one of the places you go to disconnect, right? Uh -huh. It's the one place where you don't actually have uh, a tie to the outside world, which is uh, much gratitude for that. I just experienced it for a week. 
I wasn't uh, responding to emails or text messages. Nobody could reach me. Thank God for that. But normally speaking, you have your phone, you take it to the bathroom, you answer all these messages. I mean, there's not a single moment in time when you're not connected. And that's the kind of state of arousal that I think is affecting us on a, on a chronic level today. And what's really important is that stress doesn't have to just be psychoemotional. So we're thinking of psychoemotional stress as being constant state of arousal, but also there's chemical stress from uh, you know, chemicals that we find in food or toxins and uh, uh, pesticides. There's environmental stressors like smoke and xenoestrogens. Um, there's nutritional. We don't have enough vitamins and minerals in our soil. So all of those are stressors and obviously like physiological and environmental. So all of these things compound because the body's uh, stress response is basically uh, to, res to adapt to all of these stressors. It, 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 uh, um, it activates the HPA system, the hypothalamus pituitary axis. It activates the sympathetic nervous system. It activates, uh, impacts the immunological response, impacts hormones, just so that you can adapt. And that process of adaptation happens over time and until you kind of exhaust your resources because there's a finite amount of energy that is left for you to respond to these stressors. And um, that's what we call adrenal fatigue and adrenal dysfunction and adrenal dysregulation. Um, to me, today's stress really means that you're constantly adapting. Your systems are constantly adapting and they're overtaxed. There's an over-exaggerated burden on them and wear and tear. Um, even if you're not physically feeling or if you're not thinking that you're stressed, your body is still physiologically trying to adapt to these many different changing environmental factors and psycho-emotional factors. And that's what we call the 21st century conundrum. Most people are either in adrenal fatigue or on their way to adrenal fatigue um, in today's society. And I think that's really where all of these chronic diseases are coming from. You have an elevated, uh, you have a rise in thyroid dis disorders, a rise in autoimmune disorders, a rise in hair loss, especially in women. All right. Tell me about what stress did to your hair. So for me, I'm genetically predisposed. Like I said, there are multiple factors that are implicated in hair loss. Genetics, of course, play a role, and genetics play a role in everything, but there's a strong component of epigenetics. So for me, the stress was the epigenetic component that brought my hair loss into, into progression, into manifestation. Initially, um, I stressed myself by having a, an, an eating disorder <laughs> in the 90s, like a lot of teenagers did. Um, so that kind of triggered it. Uh, the progression of this and I lost a lot of hair which ultimately didn't come back fully until much later in life um, and then I noticed that over the course of my life it was uh, either college and medical school and then residency and then I did another residency those were the times that I would shed the most and those are the times that I would lose the most amount of hair so of course even though I'm genetically predisposed to losing hair, that genetic manifestation came out during those times. And uh, my stress didn't just come from exams. My stress came from the fact that I was really bad in, in college and medical school. I uh, lived and survived on, on Coca-Cola and uh, candy and coffee and tuna fish which of course has a lot of mercury. So in addition to the psycho-emotional stress of, of studying for exams and, and, uh, and in residency, not sleeping and you know, all those things that compound, I also had a lot of toxins in my body and a very dysregulated uh, uh, and compromised gut. 
Um, so as a result, of course, I manifested in a lot of hair loss. And um, recently there was a study that came out in 2017 and actually they tested female medical students specifically uh, to see what happens during exam time and after exam, before exam time, during exam time and after exam time as uh, uh, to see what stress, ha what effect stress has on their hair follicles. And of course they found that there was a shift in uh, pro-inflammatory markers as a result of stress. So they saw that there was a heightened uh, TH1 response, so more inflammatory cytokines such as interferon gamma and TNF-alpha. After stress, how soon do you start seeing hair shedding? So again, there's a difference between acute stress and chronic stress. So there is such a thing called telogen effluvium. That's a diagnosis that Western medicine does recognize as stress-related, and that could be a physical stressor or a psycho-emotional stressor. And what happens is that um, normally a hair follicle cycles through a growth phase, which is we call antigen, um, regression phase catagen, and resting phase telogen, and then it goes into exogen, which is hair fallout. Unlike um, animals that have a synchronized cycle, so for instance, animals uh, can shed all of their fur at the same time, seasonally, and then grow new fur. Our cycle is uh, not synchronized, and so lucky for us, because we're not shedding all of our hair, going bald, and then regrowing it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So all these hair follicles are in different stages and they have a very finely tuned biological clock. Each hair follicle, imagine this, has a very own biological clock that tells it when to go into each phase of the cycle. When we suffer from an acute stress, such as a, you know, an illness, a surgery, or a death of a loved one, uh, a breakup, or maybe a big move or something like that, or loss, sudden weight loss, um, the majority of the follicles or a big portion of the follicles can suddenly are shifted into the resting phase telogen. Um, that's very you know, logical because when we are stressed, the body will focus all of its energy on essential organs and disregard the follicles. The follicles are not essential for survival. So it's a, it's a kind of survival mechanism. That's not where the energy goes. And so as a result, all of these follicles shift into the resting phase, from which point there's no way back. And so about three to four months, that's how long the resting phase lasts, the follicles will fall out. So if you ask somebody, if somebody comes in and they're suddenly shedding clumps of hair, um, the first question you ask them, oh, well, did you have a sudden, you know, did you have a stressful event within the last six months? And they'll tell you, yes, like, likely they'll tell you that something happened. Um, that's acute stress. Um, that's what we call telogen effluvium. Now, more and more today, we see chronic telogen effluvium and other types of hair loss, um, where the etiology, Western medicine still scratches their head a lot about, but in reality, it everything points to the fact that that etiology is due to chronic stress. So where it's not an acute stressor that is suddenly pushing all these follicles into telogen and then hair loss, it's actually uh, this chronic state of arousal and dysregulation of adrenal function and other hormones that's playing a role. Okay, uh, that makes sense. So it, it could be a short period of time afterwards if it's an acute stressor. Mm -hmm. And if it's a chronic stressor, it just tends to happen through all the different hair cycles. Exactly. And uh, with chronic telogen effluvium, which is on a rise today, um, 
the process just continues. People continue to shed. And also the same thing with, you know, male and female pattern hair loss. Of course, there are implicated pathways in that of how stress affects that. So chronic stress will definitely affect that type of hair loss that's more insidious. You don't see the shedding right away. You don't actually notice it until about 50% of the follicles are affected. Can you cause follicles that are affected just by, by thinning or shedding? Can you make them wake back up? Can you recover them, restore them, you know, turn them into super hair follicles? Like, <laughs> what, what hope do we have? Absolutely. Uh, the key is to restore the body. To restore the body, and by restoring the body, you restore the follicles. Every organ has an ability to heal itself, given the proper conditions. And when and, and this is what you talk about all the time, the biohacking. And so having the ability to counter, uh, to support the adrenal glands, to decrease cortisol levels, to decrease inflammation, um, or rather rebalance cortisol levels, sorry, um, to decrease inflammation, counter oxidative stress and the hormonal imbalances, you will ultimately rebalance the environment of the follicle and the systems of the body support them. And as a result, uh, support the follicle in its recovery. Is there lab tests that people should get to know if cortisol is high? So there's many lab tests that you can do. So it's not that cortisol is high. So sometimes cortisol is high and sometimes cortisol is low. When somebody has been producing cortisol over a long period of time, eventually the adrenals get fatigued and then there's less production of cortisol. So then there's a whole other slew of issues that happens. Um, so the key is to actually um, see where that system is dysregulated. And you can do salivary cortisol tests. We also, in our um, here at Nutrafol, what we do is we've implemented something called the hair mineral analysis test. So we help our customers figure out what are the stressors in, um, that are in their system actually looking at the hair itself. Um, the hair mineral analysis looks at a variety of different uh, minerals and, and heavy metals and the patterns. And so it can actually tell you what organ systems may be stressed. If you had to guess, what percentage of hair thinning or hair loss is caused by toxic heavy metals? And I know this is a guess. You probably can't reference a single paper or anything like that. But, <laughs> but just from clinical experience, I mean, do you think it's 5% or 50%? Like, just Is, is it big or is it small? Because you guys are getting data on hair minerals, which it's includes actually, heavy metals. Yeah. It's actually a really good question. So at, we're still accumulating the data. And this is what I think that's the uniqueness of having this sort of mind, inquisitive mind, is we're still trying to, to address and figure out all of these things for our customers and for ourselves to bring back to the Western medical community. What I do know is that the major things that we found are uh, dysregulation of cortisol, so stress, the adrenals, thyroid, absorption, so the gut is, is impacted by the stress, and heavy metals. And I would say I think at least um, 60 to 70% we find have heavy metal toxicity. What, what are the most common heavy metals you're finding in people with hair that's falling out? Um, I fi we find a lot of mercury, a yep. lot, a lot of mercury. Um, you know, it, it's very hard to chelate out of the body. I mean, I tested myself and I haven't really eaten I mean, I'm not that great, but I do limit my consumption of tuna and and uh, and uh, raw fish. But going back to medical school, where in college, where I pretty much lived on tuna fish um, the, my entire 
like what is it 10 years of my life it's still there so it's very hard to get rid of mercury and um, we sometimes find lead um, also aluminum from uh, deodorant deodorant use yeah antiperspirant use Uh, and we actually within our within our office itself I just did a little test myself and every single person that came back with aluminum elevated was a person that was using deodorant that was I I just have to do a public service announcement right now if you have (laughs) aluminum or alum as they like to call it in the fancy brands like the the stuff with crystalline things in it and it says antiperspirant you're doing it wrong that stuff is linked to all sorts of problems including alzheimer's and it's a mitochondrial dysregulator which is why it would be linked to alzheimer's although it's not the only cause of alzheimer's and so you just don't put that in your armpits because the armpits are where you put hormone cream so they absorb into your system really well Um, so use good old-fashioned deodorant that doesn't have a lot of synthetic crap in it, things with essential oils and natural ingredients. And if you still smell really bad or you're sweating a lot, you have other health issues to get on top of. Since I went Bulletproof, uh, I can go four days without taking a shower and I don't grow body odor. Uh, And if I eat the wrong stuff, I get body odor. So when you get your system toxicity low and you stop eating things that piss off your gut, you actually don't smell bad. That said, I still use deodorant, uh, but it's a very different thing than when you're soaking through your shirt and things like that. If so, something's not quite right, and you want to start looking at hacking your biology so that your uh, your body's comfortable and you don't smell bad because healthy animals don't smell bad unless they really don't shower. All right, back, <laughs> back to today's regular scheduling, scheduled programming. <laughs> I just want to say eight days at Burning Man, eight. <laughs> nice. So obviously, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> you, you didn't have a, you didn't have an RV with a shower. I was I was nope. spoiled at Burning Man this year. Um, but it's, I use it. I use it just for those people yeah. who are listening. I use a crystal door. I don't know how you feel about that. As long as it's not a, an aluminum crystal, you're good to oh, go. Oh, absolutely not. No, no. But it is. It's. I think it works really well. You don't limit the perspiration, but you do limit the smell. I've sent a, a variety of healthy uh, deodorants or pit pastes out in the, the biohacking box. I send a box out every quarter for people uh, who are just into the stuff I'm into. I find really cool products and I get them for less. It's at uh, my website, biohacked, B-I-O-H-A-C-K-E-D.com. So you spend a hundred bucks a quarter and then I send you a couple hundred bucks worth of cool biohacking toys and just things I come across. So there's a variety of neat stuff out there. Uh, that you can find. Just look at the ingredients. If it says alum or aluminum, it's not for putting on your skin or in your mouth. Um, okay, so you're finding aluminum is an issue, but mercury is the biggest issue. And the problem is if we don't eat fish, we don't get the omega-3 fatty acids. And if you're short on EPA and DHA, what does that do to your hair? Well, first of all, these are anti-inflammatory, so it helps right. mitigate the inflammation in the body. So obviously, as long as you're getting, uh, if you don't have a good balance of your omegas, you're going to have a pro-inflammatory state, which will ultimately compound the hair loss issue. So you do want to get those omegas, but you want to try to eat fish that is small. So I think the key is to minimize consumption of large fish. Um, and tuna is large, shark is large, and most people don't eat shark, but you find shark in some supplements, and even hair supplements, so you need to be careful to minimize consumption of large fish. At the same time, you could consume fish, but use you know, sardines or other small fish. I'm a big fan of sardines, actually, or take a supplement with omega-3s. What I like to do is I certainly supplement with omega-3s, and uh, Bulletproof has a really interesting new one uh, that I think is out, if not... Uh... 
uh, I don't know, maybe I just uh, dropped a dropped a hint there. Uh, but uh, what I do, I eat a lot of sushi when I travel because it's hard to find clean food at restaurants. But you can take things that stick to mercury when you eat the larger fish so that it doesn't get absorbed into the body. Uh, things like uh, activated charcoal, bentonite, zeolite, and other chelators uh, can make a big difference. So the idea is getting it out of the body is hard, keeping it from getting in when you eat something that has mercury, but also good stuff uh, is the strategy. Even chlorella, um, these are all things that I've, I've been using for a while and it seems to work. So it's one of those uh, one of those situations where I recently went halibut fishing. And if you catch a, you know, 50 or 100 pound halibut, the thing is 50 or 100 years old. And I always throw those back. And the reason you do that is they make a lot more halibut babies, which is a good thing for the oceans. And because they've been around that long, they accumulate a whole lot of mercury. So they're not really good for you to eat. And what you want to do is catch a young one that has had a lot less bioaccumulation. And it goes back to that smaller fish. Uh, and if you do that and you're binding some toxins, I think there's room for fish in the diet and a requirement for fish oil. Uh, but like you said, the, the collagen, and you guys are including a, a small amount of collagen in the Nutrafol supplement because you're finding it's helpful for hair, for hair growth. Yes, absolutely. And I think the key here is also to include the good stuff, but also include the detoxifiers. So we also have kelp. We also have, you know, so iodine from calcilinium and things like that that help detoxify the liver of mercury. Mercury will affect mitochondria, as you know, and hair follicles require an exuberant amount of energy. So when you have toxicity, it will ultimately not only, you know, uh, affect the hair follicle directly because it compromises the energy production, but also will affect it indirectly by compromising um, detoxification of other toxins. Okay. And so, Other than going to Burning Man to disconnect, uh, what can people with high stress, I mean, we have jobs, commutes, uh, kids, which even though they're wonderful, are enormous stressors because they interrupt you every five seconds when you try to do something. Um, what can all of us do to help stay on top of the cortisol? There are a couple of things. So you're right about uh, uh, lifestyle modifications. I'm not saying that Burning Man is a lifestyle modification, <laughs> but uh, there's things that you can do, definitely. So uh, finding hobbies. Uh, I know life is busy, but finding even five minutes to meditate, even uh, or, or to do yoga or just to sit mindfully. You know, what I try to do is, for instance, I pray on my food when I eat. I know that kind of sounds crazy, but it's not even a prayer. It's more like a mindfulness moment. It's a moment when I just disconnect from everything else and stay tuned to the presence of the of the meal. I find the meal as a good habit forming situation for me. So I time my sort of moment of silence, moment of meditation to that to that uh, uh, to that process. Um, so. Self-care is extremely important. We have to find time. Uh, it, it's important. We have apps now that we can use, so that's really helpful. So lifestyle modifications, of course, good diet uh, is important, uh, uh, and eating healthy foods that are not inflammatory, protecting our gut, um, excluding foods that are pro-inflammatory that stress our gut and ultimately contribute to the overall stress load for the body, um, as well as uh, taking uh Adaptogens. So I think adaptogens are extremely important. Um, this is something that Western medicine has not caught on to because it doesn't fully recognize that the stress, maladaptive stress response is responsible for maybe over 90% of chronic disease. So we haven't yet, as a medical society, caught up to the fact that there are these wonderful uh, botanical 
uh, gifts that we have from Mother Earth that we can use. And especially now when we have the technology available to us to extract those phytoactives and make them more bioavailable and bioactive. So things like, uh, so extracts like ashwagandha, we use ashwagandha for instance, but there are others as well, like rhodiola, reishi mushrooms and everything else. They have the ability to actually uh, rebalance the stress response to support both the neurological stress response and also the physiological stress response, which is kind of unique to them. And they're also non-toxic. So that's one of the definitions of an adaptogen is they're non-toxic, that they have a, a an ability to re modulate or rebalance rather than have a directed action. So they have a non-directed action um, and uh, they, they basically help you build resistance to stress. So you include ashwagandha in Nutrafol as a supplement strategy, but if you're not at least meditating or taking deep breaths or doing something and you're tweaking in your lifestyle, you might expect thinning hair. I think that you need to do all of those things. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I think taking it, we're all used to, that's just kind of the way we think in Western medical society or sorry, Western society is that we take a pill and everything gets better. So yes, taking ashwagandha is important, but also implementing these small incremental changes in your life. Like you said, gratitude, uh, uh, meditation, yoga, even joy in itself, hobbies um, to to, to sort of decrease that stress, to mitigate that stress response are very important. Good, healthy diet and these wonderful adaptogenic herbs and anti-inflammatories. Talk to me about uh, the female menstrual cycle and hair thickening, hair loss, and hormones. How does that work for women? There is. It's a funny question, actually. So there's definitely a um, and somewhat of a fluctuation during the menstrual cycle as to how the hair feels, not as much about how it's uh, shed or not. Um, but what I do, so it's not a huge difference during the cycle, except for the hormones will slightly change the amount of secretion. So, so the basic gland secretion. So you do tend to get like oilier hair at one point during the cycle versus another. Um, just kind of the same way as uh, acne response to menstrual cycle, for instance. But uh, I think the greater connection is, again, this dysregulation of hormones. A lot of women are experiencing um PMS, a dysregulated uh, menstrual cycle. Um, as you know, we talk a lot about estrogen dominance, for instance, and uh, PCOS, they're on a rise. So the reason why they impact hair follicles and impact hair loss is because when, for instance, when a woman is, um, when the amount of progesterone to estrogen is dysregulated, like it happens in estrogen dominance, you have less progesterone because cortisol steals that progesterone and makes cortisol, and now you have more estrogen, and estrogen is known to actually block the transition, or too much estrogen is known to block the transition of the follicle from the resting phase to the new growth phase. So we know that that happens. So as you have that imbalance, of course, you're having a, a problem with how uh, follicles cycle and grow. Um, in the same way for, uh, there's an increased amount of inflammation. So when you have, again, stress and dysregulated menstrual cycles as a result of its impact of cortisol on uh, other hormones like estrogen and progesterone, you will have more pro-inflammatory state. And uh, follicles are extremely sensitive to inflammation. So there's more uh, inflammatory cytokines that get uh, trigger a progression of reactive oxygen species and, and more inflammation. And of course, you get more hair loss as well. So stress during certain parts of the cycle where you're more prone 
to inflammation could trigger enough inflammation to affect the hair? It's not so much that there is a huge shift in the menstrual cycle during the menstrual cycle. Of course, there's a very slight change. Our bodies are really finely tuned. So in a way that the menstrual cycle doesn't affect hair growth as much, but a dysregulated menstrual cycle is connected to hair loss because Uh, there's other bigger problems at hand. Okay. So a dysregulated menstrual cycle will point to the fact that you might have an excess of insulin and androgens. Uh, and both of those things will, you know, insulin will raise inflammation and that will affect hair follicles and androgens will target the hair follicles by uh, shifting them to what we call miniaturization, uh, sm- making them smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay. So that's what happens when a dysregulated menstrual cycle occurs, such as what happens in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, for instance. Um, and uh, in the same way, it'll happen if you have a, if you don't have PCOS, you know, if you just have a dysregulated menstrual cycle, a lot of women are in estrogen dominance. They have PMS, they have other symptoms. And so that can also cause uh, a big uh, shift in the hair growth cycle and compromisation of the hair follicle, uh, hair growth. What about birth control pills? Good for your hair or bad for your hair? <laughs> um, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> Uh, I'm not, okay, keep keep going. I want to hear more. Yeah, no, you, you were going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just going to say uh, that's uh, that's awesome. Uh, and uh, my very first book was around fertility. It was called The Better Baby Book, 1300 References. And we looked a lot at what birth control pills do. So t- tell me, uh, we didn't look at hair though. So tell me what why you're not a big fan. For the same reasons, I think it contributes to estrogen dominance and estrogen dominance will impact hair loss. And so again, it dysregulates normal hormonal balances that occur. Um, I have a philosophy and it also from a point of view of, you know, there's a physiological aspect of this. Of course, you have, you're adding more estrogen to already a hyperestrogenic state because when we're chronically stressed, there is a hyperestrogenic state. And also with the addition of xenoestrogens and other estrogens from the environment, you're already compounding that issue. Um, also, the extra progesterone that you're ingesting will decrease production of your own progesterone. And as a result, progesterone naturally stimulates the growth phase, antigen phase. That's why women who are pregnant have like this luscious, awesome hair because it actually prolongs their antigen phase, the growth phase. So um, as a result, you're basically uh, compromising your own hormonal production and your own normal hormonal balance um, with these uh, with the OCPs. Um, and then from a more spiritual, more yogic perspective, and I do have a background in that as well, um, you know, women are lucky in the way that they can actually renew themselves every cycle. So there's a downward flow. So there's an there's an aspect of clearing some of that uh, stress, the energy, the detoxification, all of it, sort of renewing yourself every cycle, um, which is why they say men should go into and, and sweat to a sweat lodge every month, right? Um, so there's a there's that component as well. So that compromising that, and you know, I hear a lot of women saying, "Oh, I haven't had my period in six years." Well, great, but you're also storing all this, you know, energy in you that you're not excreting and you're not, you're not uh, letting go of. Um, so in my mind, there's a sort of double, there's, there's the, both of those things that affect you as a woman. Um, so taking uh, uh, an OCP will, will compromise both of those, the, the spiritual, physiological, spiritual, emotional, psychological, as well as physiological balance. 
that makes it makes a lot of sense. And there's an increased cancer risk from taking birth control pills and things like that. And I I tell all of my uh, women friends who are on the pill, like like you're you're going to pay for that down the road. And using effective birth control is really important, <laughs> but that birth control comes with. Uh, a large, uh, a larger cost down the road that isn't well un- isn't well known, but is well understood at this point. When you look at the data, so you're like you know, choose something that's effective, but not something that is going to increase all kinds of risk later in life. Um, so that's that's I'm happy we got to talk about that. Tell me about what happens inside the hair follicle when hair starts to get thin. Um, so what happens when we're stressed and actually these are clinical observations have been sort of anecdotal but now there's new evidence that came out um, that talks about a direct brain follicle uh, connection and um, the pathways have only been recently elucidated so what's really cool and maybe not cool for us for the hair loss but what we do know is that hair follicles actually have their own functional mechanisms for producing hormones, for producing cortisol. So we know that in the, the whole body, you know, we have the hypothalamus, it tells the adrenal, the pituitary gland to secrete uh, ACTH, it tells the, uh, which tells the adrenal glands to secrete cortisol. So we know that that's the HPA axis, the hypothalamus pituitary axis. It is actually exactly replicated in the follicle itself. And that's something that is research only recently showed so that when the follicle is stimulated from the outside, by cortisol, by corticotropin releasing hormones, it actually has its own ability to produce that cortisol itself and can also uh, use this mechanism to adapt to stress, which of course stacks the cortisol on top of cortisol. And what happens is that it actually um, dysregulates the surrounding immune responses. It produces more inflammation It uh, stimulates mast cells to degranulate and to release uh, inflammatory molecules that will cause apoptosis, cell death, and uh, also early induction of catagen, which is the regression phase and and inhibit hair growth. Um, The other brain follicle connection is that uh, our nerves. So we have a really wide awesome meshwork of nerves that surrounds the follicles in the skin. That's why we feel things, you know, that's why the follicles stand up or the hair stands up on our hands, or that's why, for instance, eczema or psoriasis get worse when when you're stressed out because of that direct connection to the nerves. So the nerves will release um, uh, neuroimmunomodulatory uh, uh, substances such as nerve growth factor and substance P, um, which will uh, actually, in some cases for, for women, I believe that that's the reason why they feel these uh, dysesthesias during hair loss or during certain types of hair loss. They feel actual tingling or pain in the, in the hair fo- around the hair follicles. Um, I believe that that's in relationship to these neurological uh, mechanisms. But basically, the, the systems, the, the, the brain gets you know hyperactive. It sends down signals. Um, these nerves, they release the, uh, these factors, and which also stimulate the mast cells to degranulate and create more inflammation, but also um, they at the same time um, compromise what is called the follicle immune privilege. The follicles have a unique system because they're a conduit between the environment and the internal body system. They have a unique way of protecting themselves from inflammation by having this immune privilege. But as a result of the, what's been shown is that substance P, for instance, this you know neuromodulatory, neuroimmunomodulatory or neuroimmune substance that's released from the nerves can actually compromise that. 
uh, that it can actually compromise that immune privilege, which allows the follicles to be uh, um, exposed to more inflammation or to trigger inflammation in the body. And that has been linked to certain types of hair loss in itself, like alopecia areata or scarring alopecia, but also is obviously a process that can uh, manifest in other types of hair loss. Okay, very helpful. Thank you. I've seen people use uh, topical progesterone, which is another hormone, uh, to influence uh, hair growth as well. And there's something that some men do. Uh, when you're dealing with your data that you have from Nutrafol, do you do you test for that? Do you see people use progesterone at all? Is that correlated with hair loss or hair growth or anything? Progesterone. Um is very important for hair growth. So ultimately it does stimulate the antigen phase, like I said, and it also has some implications for uh, how it stimulates mitochondria and energy production. So it's important for hair growth. Um, our philosophy here, however, is to rebalance from the inside out. Um, you know, again, bringing um, every organ has the ability to heal itself given the right conditions and circumstances. And so, having the ability to uh, to rebound, so going backwards, for instance, you know, putting progesterone on is almost like saying, okay, I'll put minoxidil on and I'll cover up what's happening at the moment, but at the same time, not dealing with the underneath problem. And the underneath problem in this case is actually stress. So stress will compromise thyroid production, stress will compromise uh, progesterone production, and stress will compromise the adrenal glands and the digestion, all the things that are absolutely important for the hair follicle to thrive and grow. Yeah, but so, I mean, let, let's face it. If you look in the mirror and your hair is thinning or your, some of it's falling out and your hairbrush is full, like, yeah, yeah, I, of course I'm going to meditate. I'll eat some better food. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, seriously, I don't want my hair to stop falling out right now. And, and honestly, that's what, <laughs> that's why you guys make Nutrafol, right? Because like, we have exactly. a supplement that helps with hair loss that's based on science. But uh, so yes, I, ultimately we all want everything to work well internally. And that's certainly, I, I'm in support of that. But if it's going to keep my hair from falling out, well, I get my inner house of cards in order. Should I smear that stuff on my scalp or not? And does it, does it make a difference if you're a man or a woman? <laughs> I, Personally, I've never tried it and I don't have experience with it. I know that some physicians use it in their practice, but I think that everything that is used topically only has a, a success rate of about 50%. And so it could work for some people, it might not work for others. Ultimately, if you're using it, you know, it has only 50% chance of working. So I think with hair, of course, a lot of people try different things, but ultimately anything topical usually has a penetration, like an effect of about 50%. But, okay. So if I flip a coin, am I going to be one of the two people who gets hair growth from using progesterone? That might be worth it. You could, you could try it. I think you could try it. But again, you're, 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 you're sort of covering up the symptom without uh, really addressing the issue. And I think the greatest thing that you can do is really address the issue from the inside out. Okay. And not to say that you can't add on to it. There's lots of people that do, you know, hair loss is multifactorial in the same way you can use a multimodal approach. You can also use uh, PRP plus, you know, supplements. You could do other things. Um, I don't know. I don't have first hand experience. I know okay. that a lot of our physicians do use it for some patients, but it's not as common as I would have expected it to be if it had such a wide, uh, such a great effect. It would have been used by many more people. I've, I would also suggest people maybe get their progesterone levels tested. If they're already high, it's not going to be a good idea. I did buy some over-the-counter uh, cream 
and I smeared it uh, on my forehead for a couple of weeks to see what happened. And what happened was I smelled like uh, lavender really heavily. Uh, and <laughs> I didn't see any difference, but maybe I needed to use it for a couple of months and maybe need a, a higher strength. I didn't get a prescription. So um, progesterone is a very powerful anti-inflammatory. Uh, I did take it orally after I had a, a substantial traumatic brain injury a couple of years ago. I've talked about that on a few other podcasts uh, with JJ Virgin and Mark Gordon and, and all. And all. Uh, so it, it can have a powerful way to just turn off that inflammation, but same thing. Uh, turning off inflammation to keep your hair right now, that's okay, but you might want to turn it off permanently at the source instead of blocking it. But so I, I am curious about topical progesterone. And I would say if your labs show that you're not high in progesterone and you want to try smearing it on your scalp, you're going to have greasy hair if you do it, but who knows, maybe it's worth it. But you should have the building blocks for healthy hair, you should be controlling your cortisol levels and things like that, which is uh, the direction that, that you've taken with the Nutrafol supplement, which is kind of cool. Exactly. You want to really cut it from the beginning. Uh, when cortisol is produced, it steals from progesterone. And that's really what happens when you're chronically producing cortisol. The body will respond by stealing from progesterone because they come from a from the same precursor. And, and that's the root of the issue. Most people who are... Uh, who are having low progesterone and who have uh, estrogen dominance as a result of that. Okay. What about coloring your hair? Is that good for your hair or bad for your hair? At least your hair uh, follicles. Uh, well, it's not good, but I do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't really talk against it. Um, I think that the less you do to your hair, the better it is. So if you're going to color it, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of not of not being really black and white about anything. Um, because so you like blue hair color, red hair color? <laughs> okay. Just for Burning Man. But black and white means that you're going to be more stressed out about following certain rules. Um, and being sort of, you know, allowing yourself to do certain things is fine. So not to be crazy about it. But what I do do is I color my hair, but at the same time, I don't do anything else to it. So I let it, you know, be in its curly form. So a lot of people used to blow dry their hair straight and that's the thing that we do. We have uh, salons everywhere. You can get it done every day now. There's this whole thing about social media and how you have to have a good hair day every day. Um, so that's all actually what it's doing is that it's uh, it's compromising the uh, the scalp itself. So the more products you put in, the the, the heat from the, the blow drying, everything is really causing inflammation and free radicals in the scalp. So the less you do of that, the better it is. I'm not saying don't do any of it because you do want to ha your hair to look good. You want to style it in some way. Maybe you want to color it. Maybe, you know, I want to be a blonde and I want to be. <laughs> so it's fine, but it does cause uh, damage. And the, the good news is, again, you can take anti-inflammatories. You can also take uh, really powerful antioxidants that are going to boost your own production of antioxidants and, and counter that assault. Um, minimizing, you know, is, is the best way to go. Okay, so minimize hair dyeing. Uh, how about uh, hairspray, hair gel, things like that? Are they going to increase my risk of thinning or falling out hair? Well, I put that all in the same sort of realm. I put okay. that all in this, you know, physical stressors that are affecting your scalp. So they do all create inflammation and um, and oxidative stress. So, for instance, we we know for sure things like SLS will cause a problem in the scalp. It causes irritation. Like sodium lauryl sulfate. 
Yeah, okay. exactly. So that will, parabens will alter your uh, hormonal balance. So choosing the products wisely. Um, I try my best to use only natural products. I'm very selective in my shampoo and conditioner and uh, in, in any styling products that I use. In fact, I don't actually use any. Uh, just to minimize the amount of additives and toxins and chemicals that are growing into the system. There are a bunch of shampoos out there that say they're for thinning hair, preventing baldness, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Does any of that stuff have merit? Um, the way I look at it is this. Most of that stuff is do no harm. So when you're applying something topically, well, of course, there's serums and things like that that could work that have phytoactives that will work. Um, but in terms of shampoos and conditioners, if you think about it, it's on your scalp for about, you know, 10 minutes, I don't even know, five minutes, how long it, it goes on there for. Um, it doesn't have too much effect. So I would say in that case, the best thing you can do is do no harm, to choose the products that have the least amount of chemicals so that you can uh, minimize your exposure to those and minimize the inflammation and uh, oxidative stress that comes as a result. There's some pretty good evidence, at least in men, for Nizorol, uh, which is a kind of shampoo that's antifungal. And uh, the problem there is all the rest of the ingredients are not ingredients. Horrible. I, I don't want to put those on my skin, but that one compound, maybe someone listening is going to compound a clean shampoo that has the Nizorol active ingredient. Yeah, that would be, yeah if you, so somebody make me a ketoconazole shampoo uh, and send me some. I want it. <laughs> I would say you can also use tea tree oil. So if you go the natural route, ketoconazole is basically an antifungal. And what you're doing is you're decreasing inflammation by getting rid of the extra pathogens, which are the fungal elements. And so that causes dandruff. And dandruff, again, it causes inflammation, and any inflammation can contribute to hair loss. So um, you could use natural shampoos, and, um, such, and tea tree oil is a great antifungal. So that's something that you can use instead of the uh, ketoconazole and nizorol. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I've seen, uh, I mean, I've talked with thousands of fans. I just did a couple of meetups in New York and Chicago. And um, I've seen men and women who go through periods of, of extreme stress um, who can get thin hair, which we talked about. Um, there's also people, and it seems to hit women before men, but if they go into unending ketosis without cycling in or out, or they practice intermittent fasting every single day for long periods of time, they also can get thin hair. Uh, and certainly, I've seen this over and over with people um, who are, are former vegans who got thin hair. Uh, in fact, it's one of the the first things that can happen after a few months uh, of that. Perhaps you know, lack of collagen, lack of essential fatty acids, uh, lack of protein. minerals, lack of protein. All, all those things can contribute. But I mean, what's uh, what's the role in in situations like that um, of is this mitochondrial? Is it hormonal? Is it nutrient deficiency? Is it all three? Uh, or are those different use cases? I think it's all three, actually. I think, okay. you know, you're talking about a little bit of a different thing. So vegans, I think they have the issue of collagen and such fatty acids and protein. And I see that a lot. We ask our customers, you know, what their diet is like. So I think, as you know, a lot of vegans, are, unfortunately, a lot of people go vegetarian or vegan. At times, they just don't have the proper education, and they kind of wind up eating the wrong things, uh, which are actually pro-inflammatory as well. So, for instance, if you're going vegan and you're not gluten-free, and you're suddenly eating a ton of pasta, that's not helpful to the body. That just creates more inflammation and compromises the, the gut. 
actually more. Uh, as a result of that, you know, there's a lot of research now that says that the gut is highly tied to hair. Um, uh, it's actually fascinating stuff. Uh, they're saying that um, they fed some mice probiotic and they resulted in a decrease in uh, inflammatory markers uh, and in improved luscious fur. So yeah. in the same way, uh, feeding a proper diet to um, or even uh, exchanging the microbiome, like fecal matter transplant resulted in full hairy growth in individuals who were had alopecia areata, alopecia universalis, which is a complete loss of hair. They had complete regrowth. So, so it could so, be your gut bacteria. I think it could be also your gut bacteria. If they're not getting the proper nutrition, a proper balance, you're getting a dysbiosis, and and uh, uh, or especially if you're complementing with foods that are not good. For instance, the the the, the processed sugars. Even if you're a vegan. Um, you're going to compromise the gut barrier and as a result uh, increase uh, permeability of the gut and increase inflammation and that results in hair loss as well. So I think that's one thing. And then the ketosis, people who are not, um, I mean, I'm a fan of the ketogenic diet. I oh, yeah, think me, that me it's too. Uh, one of the first books about it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan. I can't fully do it myself because my body type is not uh, is not adjusted to that. Uh, you have to cycle in and out, especially women. Very few women can go full keto all the time with, without substantial problems with hormones. Exactly. So I think that's where you're hitting on the nail on, on, the, on the head here is that um, you have to be mindful. You have to, you know, again, being strict about something is great, but nothing works the same for everybody. So listening to your body and knowing what you're feeling and a uh, hair loss could be a great way of, of, you know, unfortunately, I don't want it to be a way of looking at it, but it is a, it is a symptom. It's a symptom of an imbalanced uh, uh, stress response. It's a symptom of an imbalanced immune uh, response. It's a symptom of something happening in the body that's not supposed to be. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I just going back to the gut bacteria where you you talked about that. Uh, a guy who's been on the show several times, Naveen Jain, runs a company called Viome, uh, V-I-O-M-E. And with their test, I've been able to get uh, like full data on everything that's growing in my gut. And they also track the amount of human DNA or gut lining shedding that's happening as a result of the, back, uh, the bacteria and the other stuff going in your gut. And I don't have data on this, but I would be surprised if there wasn't a correlation between the amount of gut lining shedding and hair quality. So it's a marker of inflammation. So I'm, I've been tweaking stuff. In fact, I'm about to, to write a big a blog post on that uh, about what I've been able to do to control that, that shedding of the gut lining uh, in order to reduce inflammation in the body by making a few, a few tweaks. And uh, it's actually resulted in um, me getting even leaner without any work at all. So I, I think that could be an inflammation sign or it could actually be more directly tied. But do you know what species of bacteria are going to give me luscious fur? Because I'm all down for that. <laughs> um, that's a trade secret for now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think the science is out yet, but we'll probably find it, there right? There is some science. Yes, there okay. is some science. There's a couple of strains of bacteria uh, I, I, I'd have to look at my data to be honest with you. I can't okay. remember off the top of my head. Um, but, uh, what I do know is that there is a direct correlation to hair growth and hair health in general. So, um, there's multiple studies that show that, um, 
stress, for instance, will impact gap junctions uh, or sorry, tight junctions, so increases permeability. They've shown in studies that uh, are related to eczema, acne, and psoriasis that uh, microparticles, the lipopalosaccharides from bacteria, leak into the blood and actually wind up in the skin and cause inflammation. So, and and the hair studies are a little bit uh, behind, but there are a bunch that are coming in now. And in the last year or so, there's a couple that came out, uh, animal studies that showed that if you feed a certain type of bacteria to mice, their microbiome changes. And as a result of that, the inflammatory markers change, and then this, uh, they have healthier hair growth. Um, they've also experimented with, uh, for instance, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is marked by hair loss. And they've showed that uh, uh, simulated models and animal models, um, they show that it, it, animals with um, the dysregulated, with PCOS, will actually have uh, more inflammation. Uh, and obviously, they have insulin uh uh, resistance and have androgen production, but when they give them certain bacteria, certain probiotics, um, their ovarian, their ovaries go back to normal, and then the androgens go back to normal. And uh, same goes with fecal matter transplant. So we know that when we optimize the gut bacteria and optimize the gut lining, that uh, the hormones that are responsible for hair growth and hair loss will normalize. And in the same way, we know that. Uh, uh, when we do that, we can actually achieve better hair growth. So that's just, it's very new. This is all very, very brand new. Probably in the last year or so, this research is coming out. So I know that uh, in, uh, I think, like Columbia, they're doing research now on fecal matter transplant and alopecia universalis. So wow. they've seen some, yeah, they've seen some major, the, at least two two cases that I've seen reported where uh, two men, where they've had uh, fecal matter transplants for uh, Clostridium difficile uh, infection, chronic infections, which is the only indication in the United States for fecal matter transplant now. Um, but coincidentally, they had endopecia universalis, which is complete loss of hair everywhere for up to 10 years, refractory to treatment. And all of a sudden, they get all of this new bacteria, their microbiome normalizes, and they start growing hair again. Whoa. You, you mentioned LPS, which made me really happy. A lot of people haven't heard of this. It's, it was a big focus of the Bulletproof Diet, and it's in Headstrong too. It's called lipopolysaccharide. And when you have bad gut bacteria, they make higher levels, or stress gut bacteria uh, from what you eat, uh, they make higher levels of LPS, which is a mitochondrial depressant. It's a, a toxin that causes problems throughout the body. And so if you're eating industrially raised meat, which I would consider unhealthy and unethical, um, you're likely to have bad gut bacteria because you're getting antibiotic residues in your body. And the most commonly known substance for blocking LPS is the oldest one out there is activated charcoal. So mm -hmm. if you're going to be eating crap or you know you have dysbiosis, I think there's a good case uh, for taking some of that. And those studies have been around, I mean, forever. The Ayurvedic uh, tradition knew this thousands of years ago. But um, even now, if, if you just Google for what activated charcoal can do, and there's a bunch written on the Bulletproof site because I, I make one. Um, but absorbing LPS if you have it in your gut seems like it's a good idea for you and LPS is it directly correlated with hair loss well it's indirect right I mean okay. you because know for instance because of inflammation right. exactly so there haven't been studies directly saying that they found it in follicles let's say but there are studies that know and show that it's found in the skin and it activates you know pathologies like acne which is very similar to hair loss 
uh, in terms of how it's caused, you know, stress, hormones, cool. inflammation, so and pathogens. So this is just one way. Um, but what I do want to say, though, is that um, because we're talking about stress here, is that the gut microbiome is not just compromised by poor diet but it's also compromised by uh, psycho-emotional stress yes, as well. Yes, yes. And uh, I think that's a very important point because I was a, a great example of that. Um, you know, diagnosed with IBS, you know, all of these irregular things. Now looking back, all I was was an adrenal fatigue. And of course I was losing hair, but uh, as a result of this adrenal dysfunction and constant chronic production of cortisol, I completely dysregulated my digestion as well, which of course contributed to my hair loss. So it's important to realize that, you know, again, going back to the sources of these dysfunctions, it's not just diet modifications, but it's also, again, stress reduction because okay. cortisol will absolutely increase permeability of the, of the it actually has direct direct effect on the uh, colonic cells and their permeability. And as well, also, of course, on the vagus nerve, which controls the digestion and, and, uh, and other and inflammation as well. So, so from your own path, uh, you've sort of dialed in on uh, the stuff that you put into Nutrafol, where you're saying you've got to control your stress, so you need lifestyle modifications, which you've, you've incorporated, but you also want adaptogenic herbs. And then you want the right nutrients to support the hair growth, things like like zinc, and I'm not sure what else you're what else you're putting in there, but that's dialed in you know, based on your your chief medical officer. <laughs> what what are the other big bucket items that you put in the in the stuff that you're taking? Generally speaking, what we want to do is we want to target all of these components, right? So you have the stress component. So what we do is we incorporate ashwagandha, and again, we're using. Um, ext botanical extracts that are uh, almost pharmaceutical grade, meaning they're standardized, they're clinically tested. And I think that's very important when you're choosing your ingredients and we're choosing your supplements. And of course, you speak a lot to that as to the, as to where they come from and how they're manufactured and, and uh, what bioavailability they have in the body. So all of these have been tested for bioavailability and absorption and also their uh, efficacy in clinical uh, studies. So um, we use ashwagandha as a stress adaptogen, the major stress adaptogen in our in our product. And uh, um, it has been clinically shown to lower cortisol levels in chronically stressed adults, also improve thyroid function, because again, thyroid function is impacted by high stress and cortisol as well. And that is important for hair growth because it uh, it is one of the major stimulants for production of energy and follicles need energy. So then we target the inflammation. So inflammation is important to target because uh, it's been found and shown in every type of hair loss, something that again, Western medicine didn't recognize before, but now we know that the immune system is highly linked or it actually regulates that biological clock. So it needs to be perfectly regulated. As long as you have more inflammatory cytokines or inflammatory molecules produced at the follicle, you need to calm that down. And so you need high potency anti-inflammatories that can um, target uh, TNF alpha, IL-1, all these cytokines that uh, lead to hair loss. Um, so we use curcumin, which is an extract of turmeric uh, for that. Uh, and again, all of these, of course, are multi-targeted and they have multiple Phytoactives are nice because they have they target so many receptors, so they're able to rebalance rather than go in one particular direction, which is, for instance, the case with medications. Um, Supplemento is a natural uh, dihydrotestosterone inhibitor, and that's what we use to to, um, uh, to counter the DHT. 
the, the testosterone androgen production, hyperandrogen production in hair loss. Um, unlike Propecia or Finasteroid, it does not have any sexual side effects. It has been shown to increase nitric oxide production, so actually it improves libido and sexual functioning. So I think that's a question that a lot of men will always ask as to whether or not something like this can affect your libido because of the mechanism of action, but it doesn't actually. Uh, it's more of a rebalancing action, uh, unlike, unlike finasteride. Um, and uh, we have potent antioxidants like tocotrenols and uh, all of them are antioxidants. So you build your own, uh, 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 build up the own, uh, so you can take antioxidants which quench fried radicals, but you really want something that boosts your own production of glutathione, catalase, and superoxide dismutase, which are depleted with age and stress. So um, these systems attack. So you really want to ha stimulate your body again to, to heal itself and to produce more of these. So that's that's our kind of multi-pronged approach. And in addition to that, of course, there's supporting nutrients like zinc, selenium, iodine from kelp, uh, and um, and many other. We have 21 ingredients in total, so collagen as well. Um, all sourced from very clean sources that uh, with smaller fish. We talked about mercury. <laughs> um, we go to Iceland and Norway for our sources of kelp and uh, and collagen. Um, and uh, a couple of other, really, you know, vitamin D, all of these things that are really important uh, in terms of uh, supporting the full uh, multi-pronged, multi-targeted approach. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. Um, it, uh, uh, the idea of being able to stack things for a specific outcome is something that I, I definitely support. And an outcome of having uh, luscious fur. I mean, hey, who, who can do that? <laughs> now, uh, Sophie, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything that I do as a human being, and I want three pieces of advice, what would you tell them the most important things you've discovered in your life for just being better at everything? Being superhuman. Um... Not, not necessarily superhuman, but just better at everything, like, you know, better at being a human being. So you want to be better at not just, you know, wearing a cape or something like that, but just, you know, we, we all do things all day long. We want to be better at them. What matters most? I think authenticity, being authentic to yourself and to others. I think it's very important to being authentic with yourself about what you want in life and, and your passions in life and, um, and, uh, and I think that authenticity with yourself will ultimately translate to others. So being yourself is, is really, really cool. Um, and I've had my share of, you know, challenges in life going for medical school, kind of residency where I didn't feel like I fully belonged in, in that environment. It was very strict and regulated. Um, so when I find myself doing this, I, I, I really blossomed into who I am because it's what I like to do. Um, so following that sort of authenticity, I think, is, is, is going to make you better at everything. Yeah, these are hard questions. <laughs> uh, you got one of them. Only two more yeah, to go. I got one of them, huh? I think being uh, empathic. I think okay. being empathic is super important as well. Uh, not all of us are good at it. Some of us are better than others. I think if we're not good at it, then we should recognize that and try to work on it because we still live in a community. All right, it's one thing being, you know, somewhere meditating in the... In, in, in Tibet and another thing being in the world and, and being able to uh, communicate and, and to empathize with others. So I think empathy is highly important and in, in where you can understand that you're, some, you're doing something that's not just for yourself, but for the greater good of others. And uh, I think that translates well into being a good human and being better at everything. Um, 
why you put me on the spot. What's the third one? (laughs) (laughs) I think finding joy, finding joy in everything that you do. I know that's a hard thing to say. And it's almost like cliche. It's like affirmations or, you know, do be good, be good, this and that. But really it's about uh, tuning into the moment and seeing that you can maybe find the joy in it. And I think it'll make your life so much more easier. And I'm actually still learning how to do that. I haven't like, you know, grasped it all or figured it out or anything like that. And that's kind of the things that I want to practice in my life. You're not alone. I think everyone's (laughs) working on being joyful all the time. And I'm not saying being happy all the time. You're going to have moments of sadness. And that's okay, too. I think, you know, our society today tells us that we have to be uh, happy all the time or, 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 or not never feel sad, like feeling sad is bad. I'm not saying that feeling sad is bad. I think just find the joy in your average tasks or even anything that you might not even feel bad, you know, not, might not want to do. Uh, finding that joy will actually make you feel better about it and doing it and make you better at it and be happier as a result of it. I, uh, I like that advice. And I also like that you didn't say have good hair uh, because uh, I don't think that's one of the three most important pieces of advice either, <laughs> but it's something that all of us would probably like to have. So uh, th- thanks for, for, for not stacking the deck on that one. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, having great hair is a bonus. That's a great thing. I think that ultimately why I feel so good about what we do is because we are helping a lot of people deal with their um by, you know, we're doing this through actually rebalancing the inside out. And then doing that, you're making feel, people feel healthier. And, and, and I think hair is important, but, uh, and it has a huge psychological impact, especially on women. But we also have to keep those other things in mind, like making, being authentic, you know, being empathic, being joyful, being happy with yourself as the most, as, as some of the looking at the beauty within in a way because you're always looking at the beauty without yes hair is important it's going to shape our face it's going to make us look better whatever but that then there's tons of beautiful bald women out there or bald men who don't feel at all uh you know shouldn't be feeling bad or compromised or in any way different than the ones who do have hair it's just that it's a great bonus but it's not the most important thing in life <laughs> yeah, i totally agree uh, and thank you, by the way, uh, your website is Nutrafol, N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L. And if people go to Nutrafol.com slash Bulletproof, uh, you're offering $20 off if they want to try uh, try the, the Nutrafol supplement for hair growth and keeping your hair healthy and all, which is uh, an awesome gift for the audience. Uh, I appreciate you doing that. I guess that's part of that authenticity thing. And uh, I would say I'm not done hacking my hair. Uh, all the guys in my family have been uh, bald by the time they were 25 and 45, and I still have most of my hair, but it's it's been going back a little bit, and I've been uh, sort of fighting the good fight and usually winning, uh, but I do notice variations based on what I'm doing, and I'm working to get to the bottom of it. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and explaining the difference between what's going on in men and women, and it's been a fun interview. Ah, thank you so much, Dave. We're going to have to send you some. All right, I'll give it a try. <laughs> thank you. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.